Well, hello, 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 and good evening, Internet audience. It is Brian Thomas, the host of This Heretical Life, joined, as always, by my much handsomer-sounding co-host, Adam Leggett. Good evening, Adam. Good evening, Brian. How's it going? It's going well, although I just realized that I probably said hello, 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 because I've been watching... um, a series of unfortunate events with my oh. daughter, and that's what <laughs> Count Olaf says. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, I, I realized that like in mid-third hello, and then it was too late to, to bail. So mm. uh, an, an un, unintended Count Olaf uh, reference there. Gotcha. But um, but hey, it's Monday evening, and that means we're recording again, and um, recording for the second Monday in a row, which I think uh, I think miracles you mentioned. Miracles of miracles. I know, I know. Um if I wasn't worried about copyright issues, I should I would say you should play a clip of that song over the top of this segment uh, <laughs> when you edit it together. But um, but you know, movie studios, recording studios, they can be kind of they can be kind of protective about uh, their intellectual property. So, isn't there like a like a time limit? Like as long as you play under like ten seconds or something like that, like it's not considered a copyright infringement? Or am mm-hmm. I just making that up out of thin air? Um. There are some, like, there are some, some things like that. Yeah. So people can kind of play little snippets or previews or, or something like that. So, but I'm not sure exactly what the length is. I, I have yeah. had introduction into intellectual, introduction to intellectual property class. I took that back in the fall, but it was the worst grade I have received in law school. So <laughs> don't rely too heavily on my, okay. uh, on my grasp of intellectual property law. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but what you can trust is my grasp on the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist. That was a terrible transition, and it's also not true. Um, so, <laughs> but the Eucharist is uh, a really important sacrament. Um, the um, remind me what the what the phrase was that you used to describe it uh, last episode. Yeah. So the the source and the summit of our faith. The source and the summit, and and that's why we're recording. One of the reasons we're recording two weeks in a row, which we don't normally do, uh, is because this is part two. So we're following up on the discussion we started last week about the Eucharist, about how our perception, uh, our our respective perceptions of it changed, how that contributed to our leaving behind our Baptist roots and moving towards our our new respective old traditions. And um, we talked a lot about kind of our personal journey with with the sacrament of the Eucharist uh, in the first half of this two-part episode. And then tonight we're going to start diving into a little bit of um, sort of the scriptural, what I would call scriptural proofs of this sacramental, even literal understanding of the Eucharist and of Jesus's word. Sure. And uh, And then even, I think you've got some passages from... Uh, some of the early church fathers as well that kind of points to how how long standing this understanding uh, of the Lord's Supper of the Eucharist is. Um, sure, because I know one thing that we were told when we were younger was that it's always been seen as as symbolic, and the idea of it being literal was the more recent um, kind of the more recent development. Sure, and if I if I could add. There is some truth to that. Like the, it, sure. all, it has, it has always been seen as symbolic. But the the, if you want to call it a problem, the problem with that statement is it cuts 
short, or it falls short of what you and I came to see as the truth, which is that it's not only seen as symbolic throughout the history of the church. It is seen as symbolic from, I mean, very early on, people realize that there is... uh, there is symbolism behind all that takes place within the ritual of the Eucharist, right? Like it's it's connected to so many different things and so many different passages in the Old Testament, and um, it is reflected in so many different expressions of our faith. But it's not just symbolic, and that's right. that's that's kind of the key uh, pivot point, if you will, for a lot of people. I know it was for me. And I mean, I, w- I would imagine in some way for you too, where it was like, okay, I, I realize that what I've been given as a Southern Baptist, what's been passed on to me, there is truth and beauty there, but still a realization that, okay, but maybe there's more to the picture within the context of what the church has always taught and what Christians have believed for the last two millennia. Yeah. Absolutely, and and um, that was something, and I've probably gotten more uh, more away from saying it uh, now, um, but especially in the early days when I left the Baptist tradition, I was I tried to be careful to say that there was you know that I don't think Baptists are heretics. I'm not saying Baptists are going to hell or anyone who believes uh, and sort of the Baptist um, presentation of the gospel is going to hell, but that what was what is true and beautiful in the baptist expression of faith is ultimately what led me to leave the baptist faith because i realized that what was what i only kind of saw glimpses of in the baptist tradition i got to embrace more fully in orthodoxy right and uh, and yeah so there's i mean it, it, it's it, there's a whole lot of, look, I, I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't love Jesus the way I do. Well, like I am Orthodox because of the love I have for Christ and the love that I have for the church. And I learned to love them both the way that I do in the Baptist tradition. Sure. You know, it, it's it's because of what I was taught to pursue as a Baptist that I'm I'm not a Baptist anymore, kind of. Not really, kind of. That's just kind of the way it is. Yeah, yes, a bit ironic. um, Sure, there's some parallel in in cinematic history or in storytelling history of, you know. uh, But uh, I can't think of one off the top of my head, so we'll skip that metaphor. Uh, (laughs) But, but there, yeah, there's, I, I remember preaching about and teaching about the Lord's Supper and and sort of the more I, I read about it and the more I stood up and talked about it, the more beautiful it became and the more beautiful it became, the more I wanted to make sure I was understanding it rightly. And the more I sought to understand it rightly, the less I agreed with what, with what the Baptist, uh, with what the Baptist version of it was. Um, sure. Uh, but again, that's something we kind of talked more in depth about last episode and this episode, we're going to start talking about some of the, uh, some of the scriptural passages that, um, Maybe these are ones that we sort of encountered on our personal journey. Maybe they're ones that we've seen used um, in the time since to to sort of shore up and and um, show forth and prove sort of the concept of a literal presence of Christ in the Eucharist. 
Um, but we, we want to get into some of those because, um, you know, no one needs to just say, oh, I believe the Eucharist is the real body and blood of Christ because Adam and Brian said so. I mean, my right. kids need to say that. And eventually your kids will need to say that, but no <laughs> one else does. Um, right. So, uh, so kind of starting, and this is something I think you can trace uh, all the way back to the Old Testament. In fact, one of the reasons that it became so convincing to me and is convincing is because this literal understanding of the Eucharist to me has its roots in the Old Testament. It, it logically mm. makes sense based on what I've seen and read and studied in the Old Testament. Yeah, this um, th- what I'm about to say may be a stretch, but there's this uh, there's this part in one of the Lord of the Rings films where um, someone, I think it's in the Two Towers, uh, Gandalf comes back. Right, he he died in the first movie. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. If they've not seen it by this point, they've got problems. (laughs) Um, Dies in the first movie and in the second movie comes back to life. And they, some people accused him of being one of the bad guys. Uh, Idiots. Exactly. Called Saruman. Right. And he, he thinks for just a second and he says, or rather Saruman as he should have been. Right. Mm. Like, yes, I've come back, not quite like that, but like what the old white wizard should have been, I've come back and I, I am in the fullness. Right. Like I'm 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 all that he should have been from the beginning. Right. And I remember in my journey, I, I know I didn't end up in the East, but one of the things that I found Yet. really interesting <laughs> one of the things I found really interesting, I don't remember if it was a video or a book, but somebody had said something like, um, we, there are a lot of connections to Judaism within orthodoxy, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there is a sense in which we are Judaism or as it should have been, right? Like if, if people had, if, if the Jews had accepted Christ as the Messiah, right? Like the, the, the traditions of this ritualistic life of the Old Testament, like the, the ancient church, right, the ancient faith, should be more, uh, a fuller example or a, a more fuller representation of all the beauty that we see in the Old Testament. If, does that mm. make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does make sense. And I think that... that um that Tolkien reference is, is pretty apt um, because that is, I mean, th- this is going to sound probably highly offensive to, to anyone that's listening that is, is Jewish or an observant Jew or, or right, knows sure. observant Jews um, to say like, Oh, well, we do it better than you. Um, but, but if Christianity is true, then that's, that's 100% what it is because it's all mm-hmm. based around the idea that Christ is and was the Messiah promised to promise to the children of Abraham. Right. And, um, and that's, if that's not true, then the nothing in Christianity is true. Like you yeah. can't have Christianity apart from the idea that Christ is and was, you know, the anointed one. Right. Um, and, you know, sometimes in Protestant circles, it feels like, and, and this is a character, I know that this is not of everyone in Baptist or Presbyterian or, or what have you circles, but, there can be this tendency in certain Protestant circles to 
kind of separate the Old and the New Testament from each other and say, well, this is what God did before Jesus, kind of because he had to, but this is not, like, this stuff isn't really good, mm-hmm. right? Like, it doesn't, like, it's done away with. Like, we've put all of this behind us, and then now we've got this new thing that's way better and totally different. Um, but, of course, you and I would both argue, because of our perspective, or respective traditions, that no, like, the Old Testament was the foundation upon which the New Testament is kind of set. And if you don't if you don't recognize the patterns that God uses in the Old Testament, then the New Testament is doesn't make as much sense. It, right. it makes far more sense, the New Testament does, when you when you look back and see the Old Testament and recognize that God was doing a good thing. Like this was not um, you know, a necessary evil along the way to Calvary. Like the Old Testament is a beautiful part of this redemptive story where God sets up standards and he sets up expectations and he sets, or he lays down uh, foundational principles upon which our new covenant understanding is built. And so it's it's almost impossible, really, I would argue, to understand all that Christ is and all that he came to do and how we're supposed to express our faith in the God of the new covenant without understanding how that same God related to his people in the old covenant. Right. Which is which is why it's so important for us to to take a second and look back, which is what we're we're gonna try to do here for just a second. So Brian, why don't you you kind of walk through? I think you mentioned that you had a couple passages that you were thinking about um, from the Old Testament that kind of help us help inform us of what to look forward to in the new. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a couple. Well, there's there's one. I'm going to kind of start with like a concept from the Old Testament that you see kind of the beginning um, at I think it's I think it's the first chapter in. Leviticus that starts laying out sort of the um, the proper approach, the, the laws of the offerings, the laws of the burnt offering, the laws of the grain offering. Um, and, and we know from those passages and from other passages in the Old Testament that discuss sacrifices that the you know what sort of the, the sacrificial process was like and that you brought a sacrifice, um, a, a perfect spotless lamb or, or, you know, a perfect, uh, some type of perfect spotless sacrifice. Um, you offered it to God. It was accepted. It was slain. It was sacrificed. And then, uh, the, its flesh, its flesh was eaten. Um, and so the, the, the sort of the paradigm through which a sacrifice, uh, even like a sacrifice, a sacrifice, an atonement, sacrifice of atonement is understood is through this cycle of, presentation acceptance sacrifice and then partaking the, the, the there's a partaking of the flesh of the sacrifice mm-hmm. um but that is sort of kind of drawn out and stretched out over over a, a, a lot of different chapters and a lot of different references so i think if you kind of want to see it distilled uh into one passage the one that makes the most sense is exodus 12 where where you see the institution of the passover uh, created and given to to God's people, and and another reason it's so apt is because the Passover is what Jesus and the disciples were commemorating 
when he instituted um, the Last Supper, and and so both in the East and in the West, the the uh, observance of Easter and the observance of Pascha is tied to um, the observance of the Passover, like on the calendar, right. it's, it's connected to it. Um, and, and I think there's a lot, I think you can read the first, uh, I'm going to read the first 13, uh, verses of Exodus 12, and then talk a little bit about how that parallels what we see in the Lord's supper and how it, it makes the most sense. If you understand the Lord's supper, literally instead of symbolically. Um, and in that passage we read, it says, now the Lord, said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. Um, I'll come back to that in a second too. And it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Uh, notice there, this is in verse uh, 4, that it's divided according to, you kind of figure out whether you need one lamb or to share a lamb with somebody based on uh, what each man should eat. Already we see this direct correlation with the sacrifice and with consuming the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, beginning in verse 5, it says, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. Uh, And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Uh, That's through verse 11, and I think that's far enough. Um, So a few things. One, you you already see this, this idea of the sacrifice being eaten, um, you have the imagery of when you cook the meat, you don't eat it raw, you don't boil it, you roast it with fire, uh, which is also how a sacrifice was sacrificed. It was a burnt offering. Hmm. Um, and then you see that the both, although they didn't drink the blood, uh, obviously, there was still a use for the blood. The blood had significance. The blood had a tactile, real purpose, as did the flesh. Right. Um, and all of this was part of the ceremony. All of this was part of Passover. You couldn't do just one. It wasn't enough to just offer the lamb. It wasn't enough to just eat some lamb. It wasn't enough to just put blood of the lamb on your doorpost. It had to be this full picture of a unblemished lamb sacrificed uh, fully sacrificed through through fire, which if we want to get really sort of technical and deep and nuanced and maybe stretch it a tad, uh, which I'm totally going to do, um, <laughs> we know that when Christ died, he descended into a place that we generally associate with fire, that he de- descended into Hades to, to uh, preach to the spirits there and to, to, set, to set them free. Um, and we know that the lamb here, his flesh is eaten, its blood is put to use, 
And so what is that? And we know at this same observance, I don't know how many years in the future, hundreds, probably maybe a couple thousand years in the future. Don't, don't know the math there. But Jesus stands up at this same moment in time, essentially. Because um, one, one beautiful thing about the liturgy and a liturgical approach to the faith, and this is slightly off topic, but, uh, but I'm going to bring it back around, I promise. Um, and, and our priest talked about this at Pascha when we, um, there's the procession at Pascha where the priest kind of bangs on the, there's a procession that goes outside, the priest kind of bangs on the door to come back in. Uh, and it's sort of, it'd be easy to call it sort of a reenactment of the resurrection, and it'd be easy for us to call what we do at liturgy with the Eucharist kind of a reenactment of the Last Supper. But because it is mystical in nature, um, from an Eastern perspective, and I don't know about, about the West as much, but from an Eastern perspective, it's inaccurate to call it a reenactment because we're not just play acting. We believe that because in, in essence, and I'm, I'm simplifying it here, but because the Holy Spirit is present in all these events, and we're participating in this divine act that we're not reenacting it, we're participating with it. Mm-hmm, right. So mystically, spiritually, before the throne of God, just as Christ is standing before his disciples, breaking the bread and saying, take and eat, the priest is standing before the people, breaking the bread and, and praying and asking God to sanctify it and make it into the body and the blood of Christ. And so it's not that 2021 years later the priest is doing the same things like oh look he's doing the same kind of thing kind of you know kind of reenacting like they do in civil war battlegrounds you know every year um, but are participating in it and right. so here there's this as as christ stood before his disciples um i, I believe and uh, hopefully my priest won't call me up when he hears this and tells me this is heresy but i believe that Moses was just as the priest is sort of mystically and mysteriously and uh, and sacramentally participating in the ritual Christ ordained at the Last Supper. So to Moses, when he stood before the children of Israel, and so to those men of Israel, when they enacted this for the first time and every year subsequent, they, like the priests now, were standing mystically, mysteriously before the throne of God participating in Christ saying, this is my body and this is my blood, uh, broken for you, broken for the life of the world. This is the blood. This is the cup of the new covenant. Hmm. And so if we're going to say, uh, which, and I think this is something that, that Baptists would tend to believe. It was something I, I heard in Baptist circles. And I, I think I feel pretty comfortable saying has a, a foothold and a lot of Baptist understanding of the faith that prior to Christ's sacrifice uh, upon the cross, the children of Israel sort of participated in Christ's um, sacrifice through their observance of the Old Testament sacrifice. That that was sort of their offering of faith. Now you got to now you got to now you got to hedge your bets here though, because you get kind of close to saying that they were working for their salvation or whatever. So I'm going to use the language that you have in the new test in the new Testament. <laughs> if we're going to say that participating in the old Testament sacrificial system was the children of Israel's way of working out their faith, 
with fear and trembling, as mm-hmm. we're told to do in the New Testament. Right. And if they're working out of the faith, if they're working out of Christ's eventual sacrifice, included physical sacrifice, physical eating of the sacrifice, and a physical use of the blood, then it logically follows to me that 2,000 years after the death of Christ, as we are liturgically participating in Christ's sacrifice and are working out our faith with fear and trembling, that for us as well, it must also be, it should also be, it makes sense that it would also be a physical act of, we don't take a sacrifice though, because we're not looking forward to it. But we sort of take from the sacrifice that Christ offered because he said, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me or in, you know, that, that word remembrance. I remember I should, have, I should have looked up that word again, but there's sort of a tactile meaning in that word that's used and, and for remembrance. It, it doesn't just mean sort of have this abstract, um, you know, just sort of intangible thought about me. But it's a very kind of solid, weighty word. And and you so it probably would be stretching it, and I'm not a Greek scholar, to, to say it kind of could be translated, you know, participate in this with me. But it's it's definitely a weightier word and a weightier idea than just nostalgia. It's it's anamnesis is the word in the New Testament where he says, do this in remembrance of me. Um, and it can be translated as like bring back to mind or or what have you. But there are people that would make the argument that... Um, it's a little bit, it's a little different. It's like re-remembering or representing something. Like, representing. Yeah, th- I think that representing was sort of, yeah. was what I was thinking of. Um, do this to represent me, you know? Right. Um, and so if, and so to me this passage is just, it's one. It's it's it kind of as I thought about it, kind of became kind of the go-to when you look at well, what evidence do we see of this literal understanding of the Lord's Supper, and it's to kind of bring the Lord's Supper back to where uh, how how it was being observed. It was being observed as sort of this continuation of the Passover, um, almost like a re-presenting of the Passover, you know. And Jesus does this throughout his ministry, uh, and in fact. Um, the passage that I had in mind in the New Testament, I'm not going to dive right into it. I want to give you a moment too, but the passage that um, I think of in the New Testament when I think of this literal understanding of the Lord's Supper is actually in John. And it's in, it's him talking about, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, um, you know, you have no life in you. And even there, Jesus is representing this event from the the era of Moses um, not so much the Passover here, but talking about the manna from heaven. And so Jesus constantly, through his ministry, takes these traditions and these uh, 
feasts and festivals and observances that are central to uh, the Israelites and the Jewish people's understanding of themselves. And he, he does, he observes them. And then he, he almost, I'm going to keep using the word represent. He represents them back to the children of Israel and says, you think it means this, or you think it is just this, but I'm telling you that it is this and more. Like it is, it is meant to, it's kind of like when I think of a good, this is not the best example, uh, just because it's never probably a good idea to compare Sergio Leone to Jesus, but, um, (laughs) Sergio Leone, you know, sort of redefined the Western genre with the spaghetti Westerns because he took Western kind of tropes and what everybody knew a Western was. And he was kind of like, yeah, but what if no, you know? It was like uh, in, in Once Upon a Time in the West, he takes Henry Fonda, this classic, good guy, blue-eyed, classic, classic American cinema hero and presents him. And it's like, yeah, it's like you get Henry, like Henry Fonda, yes. But what if no? What if he's actually the villain in this movie? Mm-hmm. Um, and And not that Jesus is telling the Israelites, oh, you've got Passover all wrong. You, but he's saying, like, yes, instituted by Moses, given to the children of uh, of Israel, to the children of Abraham. Yes, like, but also, what if no? What if there? What if this manna that you ate is actually just meant as sort of a sort of a sim- you symbolically accepting the bread of heaven that is yet to come? But also, what if by eating the manna, the children of Israel all those years ago? We're also sort of mystically participating in the bread of life that appears before you now. Does that make sense? Am I, have I gone completely off the rails on this now? No, I mean, I, I, yeah, I follow, I follow what you're saying. So, and that's what's happening at Passover. He's a, he observes Passover with his disciples, and then he, I don't know, whatever word you want to use, he adds to it, he redefines it, he represents it. Uh, he, he recontextualizes it or he just says, essentially, you thought this was about Egypt. You thought this was about the, you know, the angel of the Lord, uh, passing over. It was about that, but it's also about this. It's also about me because I am the bread of life. Uh, I, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant spilled for you. And in John six, if you do not eat my flesh, and you do not drink of my blood. There is no life in you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I so think this is. I, I think this is where it's important to say that you know, just just taken on its own, right? This passage in the Old Testament, um, sacrifice and eating the sacrifice and all those different types of things uh, is probably. You know, that's, that's the danger of proof text, right? Like, I'm not saying that's what you're trying to do at all, but that's why we're fixing to move into some other things because uh, some other passages in, in the scriptures deal with some places in the New Testament um, to kind of kind of shape the lens because it's it's kind of it's all coming together uh, in a in a whole. It's like, kind of like a mosaic, right? Mm-hmm. There's like this there's one piece over here and there's this one piece over here and another piece over here. And it's when they all come together that it kind of works. So uh, we, we dealt with 
the passage in, or we kind of introduced the passage in Malachi last week, um, this idea of there being one day uh, a sacrifice presented all over the world, right, Um, Mm -hmm. for all peoples. And, okay, so what is that... What does that mean or what does that look like? And, um, you know, that sounds a little odd or peculiar. Uh, and then probably the next place I can think of, at least in the, in the new Testament, that's kind of a hot topic or a, uh, I don't know, a verse of contention when it comes to the Eucharist would be like the passage in John mm-hmm. where, uh, he's talking to the multitudes there and he deals with this passage where he says, um, that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, right, you can't have any part in me. Um, so let's kind of let's kind of move from the Old Testament. There are other places we could go to, but let's kind of transition from the Old Testament into the New Testament, kind of complete the other half of the picture, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, Brian, in, in your estimation, like when you used to read John 6, right, we can read through part of it here in just a minute. I've got some notes we can deal with but like in John 6 where he says that like if unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you can't have life in you like if you had to describe in a couple sentences like how would you have read that or how would you have explained that to somebody really simply from a Baptist perspective what would that have been like okay so yeah let me put in, I try to put my my, uh, my Baptist hat back on um, it's hard to do it is, it is, but I'm, I'm going to do my best. So um, I know of Baptist and, and Protestant theologians uh, and, and pastors who will, will agree that this, because we don't have an accounting of the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of John, right? Right, um, right. And that this passage sort of takes its place, um, that John um, leaves out, the Lord's Supper passage, but sort of he already sort of has this analogy, this this analogous passage to it here, uh, when he talks about Jesus saying, you know, unless you eat my blood and drink my, uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, uh, you have, you know, you don't have eternal life. That's the only way to have eternal life. So, because they agree that it is sort of referencing and referring to the Lord's Supper then that same metaphorical approach that they have to the passage uh, or symbolic approach that they have to the Lord's Supper applies here. And so even though there's not really anything in this passage that says, oh yeah, Jesus is clearly speaking symbolically, Mm -hmm. that that approach is applied. And so it's Jesus says, uh, you know, Jesus says, for instance, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So it, maybe it's there. Maybe that sort of sets up the symbolic approach because we'd all say like, Jesus mm-hmm. is not saying that he's a loaf of bread. Probably have even heard that in a sermon, you know, Jesus sure, isn't saying sure. he's a loaf of wonder bread here, people, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> like Jesus isn't bread. Clearly Jesus is, Jesus is Jesus. Uh, but he right. wants us to understand that he is to our spiritual selves what bread is to our physical selves. That just as, you know, we have to eat bread, just as we have to eat and we have to drink, 
to have physical life. Physically, right. Christ right. is saying that we have to eat and we have to drink to have spiritual life, and he is that food. He is that drink. There's nothing as right. essential to our spiritual well-being as Christ. And so when he says, you know, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life, uh, what he's saying is I have to be as essential to you as food and drink are. Sure. All right. So let's... Um... I feel like that's a good take. Let I'm gonna I'm gonna read through almost several verses good. of this. Word. Almost. <laughs> tell you what. Um, let's let's kind of walk through some of these passages because it's really interesting, and we need to understand the context here. So Jesus has just fed the five thousand. Yeah. Right. Um, and there, are, I don't remember if it's here in John or if it's in another gospel account, but this is a big deal, right? You've got these people that are very um, like, give us this day our daily bread was a literal like problem. Like it was, it was a real issue for people of these agrarian societies, right? We don't really understand that struggle here in the you know first world, but it was a big deal for a lot of people. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he feeds the five thousand, and so when we talk about bread right, from the get-go, we need to understand that they're, they're not only enamored and impressed that Jesus was able to feed them all with real bread and fish, but they wanted him to do it again, mm-hmm. right? Like, they, they were like, hey, if this guy can do this, he's the kind of guy we want around for a long time, right? Because he yeah. can fix a lot of our problems. He can give yeah. us bread, right? So there is a sense in which the understanding of the Jewish people within this context, because they say, like, where do we get this bread? Like, how can you keep taking care of us like this? Right? That's their concern. So we pick up in verse 32 of John chapter 6. Very truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm going to pause for just a second and and say, kind of like what you talked about, there are plenty of places in the scripture where Jesus says, I'm the door, or I'm the living water, or I'm the good shepherd, Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Um, And there's a lot of places in the gospel where the conversation's just kind of left there. Like, okay, cool. You know, like they completely understand the context. They get it, what he's trying to say, what he's trying to get at. Um, There are places where people are confused about some of the things Jesus says, and he has to explain it to them further. Uh, But there are other places where these types of comparisons are made, right? Where Jesus says, I'm the, like I said, the door or the good shepherd or the living water, so on and so forth. So we'll pick back up. This is Jesus. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son of Man and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. And the Jews there begin to grumble about him because he said... Like he, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Yeah. So, so again, pause. He, he hasn't talked about bread for several verses, but the Jews are still like caught up on 
way back, right? Yeah. Like four or five <laughs> verses before where he said that he was the bread from heaven. Um, so they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? So stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws me, and I will raise them up the last day. Um, uh, let's see, I'm going to move down a little bit. Uh, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Okay, so we're going to stop again for just a second. He, instead of trying to course correct because they're hung up on the bread, and that's not what his message is, right? Like from a from a Baptist perspective, like yeah, the bread is yeah. not a big deal. He uses illustrations and analogies all the time, right? I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the water of life, so on and so forth. But he just he kind of doubles down, right? He says, "No, I am the bread from heaven." Um, then he picks back up. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Mm. Okay, and and again, at this point, most Protestants would say. Yeah, right? Like, metaphorically, he's going to give up his flesh, right, for the life of the world. It, they, don't, they can't really deal with the whole, you have to eat it, right? Whoever eats this bread will live forever. But they would say, yeah, the bread is my flesh, which I will give up for the world. That sounds, sounds fun. Um, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So, so right here, John makes it abundantly clear that the Jews are still hung up on believing that what Jesus is saying is just like the people in the Old Testament had to eat the bread to survive in the wilderness, you're going to have to eat my flesh in order to for your soul to live, right? Like, mm. that's what they're hung up on, which honestly is really interesting because it's it's the same question, Right? That, that Protestants have. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? I yeah. mean, it's really ironic, I, I feel like. You know, it's the, same, it's the same struggle. It's like Jesus has said, this is my body is the, the bread that everyone's going to have to eat in order to have eternal life. And the Jews and Protestants, and I say Protestants in, at large, there are some that, you know, would agree to some form of what Catholics and Orthodox believe, but not the majority of Protestants. The majority of Protestants have the same question. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a big deal, right? Like there, It's not like there's a, a confusion that we as Catholics and Orthodox have or that we as modern Christians have and the Jews were on a completely different page. Like it's, this, it's the same argument. It's the same question. How is this possible? How can this be? Um, so, so then... I feel like we can approach this and say, okay, what's Christ's response? Because we're not asking a different question from Jesus. The Jews and us today are asking the same question. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? There's the same confusion. There's the same like mystery involved in all this. Um, whether you're a Jew of the first century or you're, you know, Luther or Zwingli, let's say, say Zwingli or you know, some Protestant leader today. That's the same issue that's going on. They, like, they obviously are hung up on this. So then Jesus says to them, 
Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you can have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Emphasis added. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. It's kind of like, okay, there's obviously, from a Protestant perspective and from a Jewish perspective, again, because they're asking the same question, there's obviously some confusion, right? They obviously have heard what Jesus said and were like, hold on. How is this possible? Like how like this this doesn't sound right, right? How can this be? And at this point, it would have been incredibly easy for Jesus to course correct, been like, oh, you know what? Uh they're gonna take this the wrong way. They are taking it the wrong way, right? Like if 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 the Protestant perspective is correct, right, the Baptist perspective is correct, that it's just symbolic, that you don't really eat Jesus' flesh and blood. Jesus would have been, I feel like, compelled, right, to to answer the Jews' question because they had the same question. How how can this be? This this can't be what he means, right? But instead of saying, you know what, guys, I'm, maybe there's some confusion going on here, right? He he doesn't. He he doubles down. He sticks mm. to his guns. And not only does he stick to his guns about the bread motif, but he adds in and drinks his blood, right? <laughs> he doesn't just stop and say, you have to eat my bread, because that's all he's talked about up to this point. He throws in there, oh, and by the way, you also have to drink my blood. This, blood, this, this bread is real food, and this blood is real drink. And I just, I, I don't know, when I got to reading that and working through it and like, realizing, and I think this was the key, when I realized that the Jews were asking the same question of Jesus, I think it kind of shifted everything for me because I realized that Jesus's response, he didn't really leave any wiggle room. He didn't explain away what he said. He, if, if Baptists are right, then this is what Jesus did. He realized that people misunderstood him and believed a lie and he doubled down on it so that they walked away with a lie. Because he doesn't correct their, their wrong belief. Does that make sense? Like if, if, if they say, if they're confused and they think that Jesus really means his flesh that they have to eat, and Jesus realizes and knows that they're confused, and he didn't really mean that, Right? Then, then Jesus, the perfect one, the God of the universe, intentionally doubled down on something that he knew people were misunderstanding and let them walk away with a false assumption about the truth on purpose. Yeah, and, and contrast that with like his interaction with the Samaritan woman, you know, and, and him saying, you know, it's not good to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. 
Right. And her response clearly is like, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that come from the table. It's clearly this exchange where he's, Jesus is speaking one way and the woman understands him and responds correctly. Um, you know, continues the idea of, I acknowledge I'm not worthy to just come up and sort of have an expectation to receive your gift. Right. But even those who are unworthy are still blessed by it and mm-hmm. contr- contrast that with like when Jesus would speak in a parable and his disciples would be like, we don't know what the heck that meant. And Jesus like, mm-hmm. all right, I'm going to explain it to you, you know? Right. <laughs> and then sometimes he would speak in a parable and they'd like, we don't understand it. And he'd be like, just like, give it a minute, you know? Right. Right. But you there, don't there, have yeah, any- Mark, Mark chapter four, verse 34. If people want to go look that up later is, is a good example of that. Jesus has been talking in parables his disciples are confused, so they come to him, and he explains it to them. He's like, okay, I realize you don't get what I'm trying to say, so let me clarify. Yeah, yeah. Right? Let me let me explain what's going on. But Yeah, yeah. But he doesn't do that in John 6 at no, all. No, he, like, he goes he, harder. <laughs> he goes above and beyond to reinforce the thing that, they're, that they doubt. Yeah. Right? The thing that they don't understand how it's possible, he just like doubles down and says, "Yeah, the, um, I, I said what you thought." Yeah, and right. even like there's even this progression when he says, "You know, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven," and then it says, um, "You know," then he talks as you said for a few verses. He's moved past the bread, and it says in verse forty-one, the Jews are grumbling, and it says, "How can he say, um, I can't? You know, how can he say I'm the bread that came down out of heaven?" And initially they're saying, is this, isn't this Jesus like the son of Joseph? How is it? It's like, how can he say he came from heaven when we all know who his parents are? And so then Jesus comes back, like you said, and says, look, I'm the bread of life. Um, the bread also, which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then the Jews say, how can he give us his flesh to eat? Like at first they're just sort of like taking issue with how can he say he came down from heaven? We know he didn't come down from heaven. And then Jesus double down, doubles down and says, look, he's almost like he says, you're getting upset about the wrong part of what I said. I didn't just say right, I came, right. came down from heaven. I said I came down from heaven, and you have to eat my flesh. And then they right. say, how can he give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus says, no, 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 yeah. you don't understand. Not just my flesh, you're gonna, my, my blood as well. Real true food, real true drink. And then in the passage after that, it even says his disciples are talking about it afterwards, and they say, this is a difficult statement. Who who can listen to it? Like his disciples understand, like this kind of makes no sense. This this is like, this is like, kind of like, right. this is not good for us. Like people are not going to like this. And Jesus turns to them and essentially says, does this cause you to stumble? Like Jesus doesn't, ex- like we just kind of said, he doesn't explain it to them. He doesn't say, look, I'm speaking in a parable. Let me let me tell you what it means later. He says, basically, is this like, are you okay with this? Like, is this, is this a deal breaker for you guys? You know, what then? If you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And then it says, uh, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. There, there's nothing in the in kind of the follow up to this that indicates Jesus is speaking symbolically or in a parable. 
none of the sort of indicators that we see in other passages, like you mentioned in Mark 4, where we see that Jesus speaks in a parable. Some people understand it. Some people don't. And he takes time to explain the meaning of it, um, right. either right then or, or the gospel writer tells us he did it later. And we don't sure. see that here. Instead, be, we, instead, we yeah. just see Jesus constantly challenging them, saying, you're going to have to accept that I meant what I said. Hmm. Yeah, the one the one pushback or argument that I've heard or that I honestly struggled with at first was the passage you just read where it talked about the, um, where it mentions the flesh when he's talking to the apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, can you read that again? Oh, um, he says... Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Hmm, Okay. Yeah, so the idea that the flesh doesn't really do much good, right? Or that it it lacks. Um, And then earlier in the passage, he says, for this bread is my, or my flesh is this bread, right? This kind of idea that, um, you have to to eat my flesh, right? Right. But but so so they would say, look, it's saying it says later on that the flesh isn't good for much, right? Like it's just it's just flesh. But I would argue it doesn't really make sense because when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's talking about their flesh, right? right. But when he's talking to the Jews, he's talking about his own flesh. But he's not saying that you know what, my body really doesn't matter for much. Right. right? It doesn't right. really count for much. So if you're gonna if you're gonna equate these two sections like with equal signs, it doesn't really make sense because he's he's not referring to his flesh when he's talking to his apostles. Right? It, it right. he's talking about just this idea that like a fleshly perspective or a worldly perspective, like you you and your your sinful state, right? It's hard for you to accept the things that are eternal right it's, but it's, that's the that's the struggle of all of mankind throughout the ages right that's why we need faith um because our flesh is weak the spirit's willing but the flesh is weak there's a weakness there but jesus didn't suffer in the flesh those same types of sinful weaknesses that we do right so the, i i really would argue that those two things don't really equate out because he's not referring to the same type of flesh um it doesn't it doesn't feel like it could be when, when you recognize like the object that is, is being referenced, like when he talks about his flesh in the first part, and then he's talking to the apostles, talking about their, their struggle to believe, it, it seems to be pretty clear that he's dealing with, in that second section, like this idea of like fleshly weakness. Um, but that's not what he's talking about earlier in the passage where he's dealing with the, uh, this idea of eating, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's it's clear. It's almost he's like he's contrasting, um, you know, your flesh. It's kind of like my. It's almost like he's driving the point home. My flesh is different than your flesh. Um, you right, know, he talks right. about the spirit that gives life. One one core and key uh, understanding of of Christ is that the union, you know, that existed between the spirit of God, uh, that was you know, between his two natures, the, the divine side, the divine nature and, and the human nature and, and that union that existed in him between spirit of God and, and the flesh of man, 
And so in a way he's telling them, look, you're not like me. I'm not, I'm not like you, your flesh, like what kind of like what, and it is, I think talking about, look, your fleshly worldly perspective is going to fail you. You like, you sort of have to accept by the spirit. Um, as he says at the end of that, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted him from the father. Um, sort of like, look, you, you can't, your flesh can't understand what I'm telling you about mine, but the Ooh, spirit can, right. if the, if so, let yeah. the spirit lead you to understand what I'm saying, because he doesn't, when they say this is a difficult, difficult statement, who can listen to it? Jesus doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, no guys, you're misunderstanding. This is super easy to understand. You know, this right, is incredibly right. easy, barely an inconvenience. This is, he says, no, basically he's agreeing with them. Yeah, this is difficult. This is basically impossible for your flesh to accept. However, the spirit will guide you. The spirit, the father will send you the spirit to draw you to me so that you can mm-hmm. accept what I've, what I've just said that, that the Jews didn't care for and that, and that you you know, it doesn't say, I don't get the sense reading this that the disciples were really so much arguing with him, but it's just sort of like, I, I think they did understand in a, in a sense what he was saying. They were just like, right. they were just sort of like, whoa, this is like, I, we did not expect it. this is almost yeah, like do, they were sitting there, <laughs> almost like they were sitting there thinking, guys, are, did we sign up for this? Like, can we commit right. to this? Yeah, he doesn't ask, does this offend or does this confuse you? Right. He says, does this offend you? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty key difference, you know, because honestly, it is offensive. I mean, it's a little, it's a little abrasive. I mean, it's really abrasive. Obviously, people were leaving him because of what he just said, right? Um, it's kind of icky, like in in one sense. I, I know that's a weird word. I, I don't really like using it, but I, it's kind of gross. Right, like in one sense, like and especially for Jews, right? Like this whole idea of kind of cannibalistic sounding talk, you know, or yeah. talking about drinking blood and those types of things. It is offensive. It's it's especially for a first century Jew. This is not some light thing that Jesus is saying. Yeah, um, and especially the sort of the implication of not only the sort of cannibalistic thing but then jesus sort of saying and you've been doing this the whole time you know because Mm -hmm. there was this sort of sense of you've you know your fathers have eaten this bread oh but that is my bread i mean that i am that bread and that bread is my flesh and so if you're Mm -hmm. going to draw a straight line then jesus is essentially saying way back when in the day your fathers ate my flesh because I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. Somehow, and again, my priest may call me later and say, no, Brian, don't say that. Record a retraction. Like somehow mystically almost the manna was, I don't know, maybe we should just say it was representative of Christ. I'm, I'm not sure, but um, yeah. Yeah, the Jesus is I, very I would, clearly drawing so. this line. I, I think, right. Yeah, the Old Testament, um, I guess my understanding of it from a, a Catholic perspective at this point is that it, it is it is an image, right? It's a picture. It's something that's supposed to point, um, point us forward, point us towards 
the new covenant. Not because the old covenant is bad, but because it's not enough. Right. Right. It, it's not, it isn't Christ. In the same way that we look back to Christ, the people in the old covenant, the old Testament looked forward to Christ. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I guess you can ask your, your priest. I'm not entirely sure, but I would think it's not quite the same in, in the sense that there is, there is a sense in which these, this manna from heaven, because he says they ate it and they died. Right. Um, but yeah. if you want to have eternal life, you have to eat my flesh. So there is a distinction there. There is a difference between these two things because, um, you know, I, I mean, it, it seems like he's he's drawn a line, a distinction. Yeah. No, but I also think correlating. So yeah. It, it might be both and. It's like, yeah, there, there is a sense in which they're connected. They do, you know, one does point towards the other and by faith, kind of includes you in the other, but the other is other. Like Jesus is, he is what all these other things accepted by faith pointed to. Um, so there is a connection there. There is a participation in that sense, but it wasn't the same. At the, no, at the yeah, same I think time. you're right. I think you're right. It wasn't the same. Um, I think you could, I, I would probably correct myself by saying, well, if, the presence, the idea of the real presence of Christ in some sense, like in the manna is sort of dispelled by the necessity of the real presence of Christ in Hades, um, after his, after his crucifixion. Um, as we say in the, in the, in the Paschal Canon, after that, we say we've been praying all this week, um, like in the body on the cross, in the spirit, in, um, like there's this the verse, hang on, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it correctly. Um, it's really beautiful, and I've thought about putting it on my Facebook a few times, but I don't want to weird out all my Baptist friends. Um, but uh, it 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 I just thought it was really really that's not it um, a really really neat sort of presentation of the reality of the crucifixion and Christ descent into Hades. There it is. Uh, in the tomb with the body and in hell with the soul in paradise with a thief and on the throne with the father and the spirit was thou O boundless Christ filling all things. So I, I think you're right. If I think Jesus is drawing a distinction when he says, you know, they ate this and died. Um, so clearly a, a connection, but also sort of a distinction. Um, and so, again, in correction to myself, I would say, well, if Christ was in some way present in the manna, then why was it necessary for him to be uh, present in hell after, to go and preach to those that were um, whose spirits were in bondage? Because I don't think that would have been necessary had his presence been in the manna in, in the same way that it is in the Eucharist, if that makes sense. Hmm. Sure. Um but there, but I still think that there was this sort of offense of look, you're taking you're taking this thing that's sacred to us, and you're at the very least, you know, analogizing it to cannibalism. Right, right, right. Um, so that yeah, we the, and and John six. I mean, that was kind of the the other main passage I had, and we've. I mean, I guess we could talk about the. The passages in the uh, the synoptic gospels where he actually institutes the Lord's Supper, but 
I, I feel like we've talked about those pretty thoroughly, even without direct mm-hmm. quotations from them. But was there something about sure. those that you wanted to reference, or did you want to you want to pull some some references from the church fathers as we um, start to wind down here? Yeah, probably the references to the church fathers. There was one thing I saw, and I don't recall where it was. Uh, it was a blog post. I could find it. I think I have a link, link to it somewhere, but it was just this idea that, you know, it's so funny. Jesus says, this is my body. And it, he said something to the effect of, uh, in Scripture, God never declares something without making it so. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting, and I'd probably have to, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you could probably nitpick that sentence uh, to death. But, you know, this idea where God renames people like Abraham or, or Isaac or Jacob, or, well, Abraham or Jacob, I guess. He didn't rename Isaac. Um, but where God speaks things into existence, where he, he says something, he says it, it is this, or, it, you know, and it becomes that. Or um, he says, let there be, and it is. Right. And I, I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting. Again, I, I, it's just kind of food for thought. Um, this is my body. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if Jesus said, this is my body, would that not, is it not possible? I guess I would have to ask somebody, you know, that it really happened because he said it. Yeah. Um, this is the God of the universe, right? Like, why could it not be? And I can, it kind of goes back to something I mentioned in the in the last podcast that we recorded, but it's like, at at some point you just have to stop and ask the question okay why can't god do it this way yeah like if he wants to if he wanted to if god really wanted to why couldn't he mm. like what objection do you have a wise one you know uh whoever you might be to say well if god wanted to do it this way why couldn't he Right. What's 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 so objectionable about it? Why is this impossible? Why is this not? I, I don't know. I mean, other than growing up, just knowing that that was Catholic and Catholics were bad, and so <laughs> you know, I, I didn't I didn't have a good reason like why God couldn't do it that way. Yeah, if He saw fit, I, I think there are some theological repercussions that some people might see, and so they preemptively strike it down as a possibility because they don't like where it leads as far as, uh, you know, how we're saved and redeemed and, you know, the re- kind of the requirement to participate in order to be saved. Um, maybe that's, that's the problem. So they try to preemptively strike at the, at the root um, of the sacramental life because they think that the sacramental life means that we earn God's love. And so they try to like strike at the at the root of that and say, okay, well, if we just say that it's it's not really his body and his blood, therefore it can't have any redemptive nature when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Therefore, nobody can say that because they participated in the Lord's Supper that that has something to do with their salvation. Right. Um, maybe that's you know that maybe that's part of the. I, I don't like. I don't want to accuse people of um, of motivation. But it's kind of what it felt like growing up. It's like, yeah, the reason we it can't be like this is because what Catholics do with it. You know, they, they try to make it sound like 
because it's like this, then you have to participate in the Eucharist in order to be saved, and therefore it's a work, and we don't believe in works. So we, we kind of work our way back in the progression of thought and say, okay, well, then therefore it can't really be Christ's body and his blood. He wouldn't do that because it leads to too much confusion. Right. Um, I, 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 I hope that made sense. And I, I think that's probably what part of it is. Again, I, I don't want to lay too much um, accusation at people's feet as far as motivation for, for why people believe some of the things they do. I, I don't know if that's entirely always fair. But uh, I do get the feeling that that's part of it. It's not so much that, because nobody in their right mind would dream that they could tell God what he can and can't do, I don't think, from a, you know, uh, devout Christian perspective. You know, like who are, who are you to tell God what he can and can't do? And right. everybody would say amen, right, on mm-hmm. both sides of, mm-hmm. of this discussion. Um, but then the, the worry comes from, okay, well then, what happens if you hold this belief? Uh, and, and so it becomes really an argument of presuppositions, right? Of what do we need to believe in order for this passage to be okay? Um, or or what, what do we need this passage to say in order for our belief to make sense? Uh, I, again, that's kind of the feeling I get, um, when I think back over my previous Baptist arguments and things like that, it's like, okay, well, if he said this is my body, let's just throw all the other arguments out and ask ourselves the question, why couldn't it be that he means it? Right. Um, and then you end up with a lot of a lot of things. But yeah, let's let's kind of get into the early church fathers a little bit. Um, you know, I'll, I guess I'll start out a little bit. There's this idea of of this kind of kind of go back to Malachi, this idea of uh, of a sacrifice for all people in all places. Uh, in the Didache, which was written really early on, like uh, late, I, I, I'm I may get this wrong, but it's like late 90s AD. Uh, I'm pretty sure. So like when some of the apostles were still alive or somewhere around that time, uh, he's the, the Didache was a, a document written kind of like a uh, an introductory, right, to faith and practice for the early church. Yeah. Um, kind of a, a guideline for how we worship. And said, on the Lord's day, Assemble in common to break bread and offer thanks, but first confess your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. He calls it a sacrifice, which is really interesting. Um, However, no one quarreling with his brother may join your meeting until they are reconciled. Sounds kind of like Paul. So that your sacrifice, uh, or because your sacrifice must not be defiled. For here we have the saying of the Lord, in every place and time offer me a pure sacrifice. For I am a mighty king, says the Lord, and my name spreads terror among the nations. Direct quote of Malachi. Um, so it, it seems pretty clear from this, anyway, that at least some of the people in the early church understood the passage in Malachi to refer to some new covenant uh, form of worship, right? Because they quote it and say, this is why your sacrifice needs to be pure when you break bread and offer thanks. 
which again, most places in the New Testament, most Christians will say, when it talks about the breaking of the bread, it's talking about the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, right? So in the Didache, he says, when you come to do that, make sure you've confessed your sins. You don't have any kind of conflict with you or your brother so that your sacrifice is a pure sacrifice. Because the Lord in the Old Testament said that that's how this was supposed to be. When you offered this sacrifice uh, for the nations or, or in the presence of the nations, it was supposed to be a pure one. So make sure that you do it right. Um, really interesting uh, to me. Let's see here. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, right? Mm -hmm. This is in the late, well, somewhere in between 80 AD and like 110 AD. He says, uh, consider how contrary to the mind of God are the heterodox in regard to the grace of God which has come to us. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his graciousness raised from the dead. Um, Justin Martyr, uh, see, for not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ our Savior, having been made flesh, and blood for our salvation, so likewise have we been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word, and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished, is the flesh and blood of, the Jesus, of that Jesus who was made flesh. Again, this is, you know, somewhere around 100 AD. Yeah, so a couple, uh, a couple church father, I guess, references. One's not really a church father. One is... Uh, was kind of was there was a, a a kind of a defense of the faith written by uh, uh, it's called the Octavius. I'm going to get the the guy who wrote his his name wrong, Minicius Felix, and uh, he in this he sort of is disputing. He writes it as sort of this dialogue between these two fictional characters, one who's a Christian, one who's not, and sort of addresses in this what. Uh, we presume to be or like some actual perceptions of Christianity that ancient Romans had. And one was this idea that they would uh, conceal a baby in a loaf of bread uh, and then trick someone into slicing the bread and thereby killing the, the, the infant so they could eat the infant's flesh and drink its blood, which is just absurd uh, for one thing, but also probably what you would kind of get if you're a bunch of like maybe drunken Roman guys sitting around trying to piece together what it is that you've heard about Christians like while you're drinking and you're kind of drunk and so bread and wine kind of get confused with Christ born of a virgin get confused with the sacrament of the Eucharist which gets turned into this this disgusting thing of cannibalism um and the other thing from the early church fathers, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but I remember uh, in seminary reading, I believe it was it was Clement uh, of Rome, when they were trying to figure out how do we deal with the, the apostasy that occurred during one of the more recent sort of Roman persecutions of the faith. Should we permit them to sort of come back into fellowship, these, these believers who had apostatized? And one of the main 
concerns was the Eucharist. And there was this sort of dual concern of even if they're sincere in their sort of uh, recanting of their apostasy, like can they exist can can they live without the Eucharist? But also can we permit them to take the Eucharist? Would would they survive taking the Eucharist after they have apostatized? And and there was just this real heavy sense and understanding of the Eucharist. And this one idea, it is it is essential that we participate in it. But then conversely, can we can we permit them to participate in it? Would it possibly instantly kill them and damn them that way? And literally probably one of the original damned if you do, damned if you don't scenarios kind of built around the Eucharist. And I think it was Clement who eventually said, well, no man can have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother and sort of proposed this, uh, this sort of pathway back into the, the church for those who had apostatized, you know, under this threat of, of severe persecution. Um, and and you you went over that a little bit more thoroughly than I did, probably a lot more thoroughly, and, and references to some other quotes. But again, I think it's clear uh, that the early church fathers understood the Eucharist as they approached it in such a way that saying it's merely symbolic does not do justice to the way that they wrote about it and the way that they related to it. Well, everyone, that's going to be all for this episode, but thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode. In the meantime, please consider rating and subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to listen. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us at thishereticallife at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter if you care to look us up there. Until next time, on behalf of Brian and myself, thanks for listening, and God bless.